Galatians chapter 2. So Pastor Chris wrapped up uh, our series on technology in the home, and next week is Easter. Now somebody please tell me what time Easter worship begins uh, on Easter. 10.30, yes! I'm glad nobody said 11. Okay, good. And I, as I expressed last week, my great fear is that we'll not show up on time. So, so we won't have Sunday school next week, and I'm so we're kind of uh, in between on, on series, and so uh, what I wanted to do today was, uh, instead of kicking off a new series or something like that, um, more hit a verse or hit a, a series of verses that's been on my heart lately. Um, I don't even necessarily have a bunch of applications all lined up. It's a passage of scripture that bears a lot of meditation, and you'll see why in a minute it's such a life-changing thought with so many different applications. Okay? And I think you'll see why when we get there. But let's go to Galatians chapter 2, and let's read verse 11, and we're going to read down through verse 21. Okay? Paul's writing, and this is probably the first letter that he wrote. He's writing to a group of churches in a region where he had been active as a teacher and as a pastor in a church there. This church had been beset by teachers coming in who said that you had to add to the grace of God, that you were saved by grace and by submitting in some part to the Jewish law, that there were rules that had to be added to grace. And these people are called Judaizers. And they considered themselves to be Christians. They came into this church at Galatia, and Paul is helping the church think through these very issues. And we'll talk about them in a moment. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, now Cephas is Peter, okay, and this is the name that Jesus gave to Peter. And Paul is using that name by, uh, he's using that name strategically because he's about to confront Cephas, and he's trying to remind Cephas what Jesus said. Not to be afraid of people, but to be afraid of Jesus. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before, and it doesn't mean before as in in front of, but more time, Previously, previously, certain men came from James. And before these guys from James came, he says, Cephas, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. These are the people that say you have to add some Old Testament works to be saved. He was afraid of them. He drew back. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, 
not like a Jew. How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You might want to insert a so-called Gentile sinners. He's speaking sarcastically there. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's a scene that is so very common, isn't it? I remember I was a, um, a senior in high school, and there was a young lady there that I'd gotten a little interested in. And I had expressed the interest, and she had reciprocated. And then the very next day, lunchtime came around. And she was sitting over with her group of friends, and I went and sat with my group of friends. And that night, she asked, why didn't you come and eat with me and my group of friends? And the answer was, well, I liked I like my group of friends better than your group of friends. <laughs> Why didn't you come eat with my group of friends? Do you see how sort of silly this is? It's very simple. It's very, it's very um, common, isn't it? Who am I going to eat with? Very simple thing. Who am I going to eat with? And this is what Paul was struggling with. Now, what we need to do is go grab some context, which goes back farther than we read. And what we need to see is how Paul dealt with this issue and then reasoned up to a vast, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A vast uh, worldview statement. Okay? He's... He's, he's making a broad claim about Christ and applying it to a very specific situation. Okay? And this broad worldview claim has lots of applications for us today, as we'll see when we get kind of toward the end here. Okay. Let's get a little context. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Galatia, and flip back, if you will, with me to chapter 1, verse 11. That's actually where this discussion begins. Okay? In chapter 1, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, For I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Let's stop right there. There were people in the church at Galatia who were saying this. They were saying, this guy, Paul, you can't trust him because he's not one of the original apostles. He's not a person that 
walked along with Christ uh, as Christ sojourned in his earthly ministry. So you can't trust him. You need to believe our version of the gospel, not Paul's. And so what the Apostle Paul then does, beginning in chapter 1, verse 12 forward, is say, actually, no. I, I submitted to these very apostles. And he, he goes into uh, how exactly he did that. He went back to Jerusalem. He spoke with the leaders there. He got their blessing. They said, all we want you to do in preaching to these Gentiles is remember to regard the poor. Paul says that was the very thing that we wanted to do. So what he's saying is, number one, you, you, you're saying, you've been told, you've been taught, you can't trust me because I wasn't one of the original 12. That's what Paul says. But I want you to know that I've come under the authority of the original 12. And this was done very publicly, and you can go check up on me if you want, is what Paul is saying. He says, number two, I want you to know something. If we were to submit to that sort of human authority alone, that would actually be bad. Because people have feet of clay, and people are prone to error. Case in point, let me tell you about Cephas. That's what Paul's saying. He says, brethren, I want you to know my gospel is from God. Now, some say that I'm doing it outside of apostolic authority. I want you to know that's not true. I am coming under apostolic authority. But furthermore, if I were merely submitting to people, if I were merely submitting to people, that too would also be bad. Case in point, Cephas came and visited us in Antioch. Now, what the Apostle Paul is referring to there, and now we're, now we're down, we've advanced to chapter 2, verse 11, where we pick up our reading. There was a thriving church in Antioch. You can read about this in the book of Acts. Barnabas went there and found these Christians who were thriving. The first thing he did is he went to Tarsus and found Saul and brought him back to Antioch. And Barnabas and Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, began ministering to this group of people in Antioch. Antioch is about 250 miles north of Jerusalem as the crow flies. Furthermore, we're told in the book of Acts that Antioch is where people first started being called Christians. It's where they first started being called Christians. And that's where the Apostle Paul was ministering. The apostles, the original 12, the original 11 minus Judas, were down in Jerusalem. And they heard about these great things going on up in Antioch. Peter came up for a visit. And Peter was like, man, the Lord is so working here in Antioch. This is great. They were having an unprecedented time of brotherhood and unity. and They were eating meals together. Now, in that culture... Communal meals are very, very important. Far more important than breaking bread is in our day. You know, if somebody gathers their food and goes off by themselves and gets on their phone and 
eats by themselves, we would just assume that they had some business to take care of or they wanted a moment of quiet and we wouldn't think much about that, now would we? Not so in first century Antioch. Who you ate with, who you broke bread with, said a lot about who you were. This is why, for example, when Jesus was invited in Luke 7 to a rich man's house, or to a Pharisee's house, rather, Simon the Pharisee. Simon invited Jesus in, but then refused to give him kindnesses, like washing his feet or giving him oil for his head. What he was trying to do was create some distance between him and Jesus because he was afraid of what his Pharisee brethren might say. So he was putting a little distance between him and Jesus. And Jesus took note. So Peter is there, and they're sharing. They're together. They're one. And one day, some other people came up from Jerusalem. Now, these people were a little bit different. They claimed to be Christians. But they were wrestling through a problem that for them was very challenging. And here was the question at hand. When Gentiles, people who aren't born Jews, accept the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, do they also have to adopt Jewish laws? Now, the Jewish law ended up getting focused onto one point and one point alone, which was circumcision. So when a Gentile male accepted Jesus as his Savior, did he also have to submit to the surgical procedure of circumcision? Now, Let's pause here and ask why, and I want to get your guys' answer, why was this so challenging for Christians in the first century to work through? Why was this such a hard issue? A very good reason, and we need to be sympathetic to them, because there's a very good reason for it, very good reason for why it was hard. Why is that? Why was this so hard for them? Daniel. I I think you're very right on that point. There's a culture to it, and there is a, a history and a background, and this is all I know. Okay? That's very much part of it, but there's something more. That's a great question, Charity. Did anybody with authority say they didn't need to do it? The answer is yes. In Acts chapter 15, all of the apostles plus Paul had made a declaration that they don't. They'd made a declaration that they don't. There's a question of timing. 
had that event already happened? Were these people looking backward or were they looking forward? We're not totally sure. We think that the Acts 15 Congress had not yet happened. Because if it had happened, Paul would have just said, we already decided this. It's open to debate. You, there's points on either side. But that's a great question. Yes, Nathan. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The Jews had Bible on their side. The Judaizers said God wanted Abram, who was a pagan Gentile, as it were, to be circumcised. And then when the Jews had not practiced it and had come out of Egypt, God wanted them to be circumcised. Shouldn't it be that when you've been saved from darkness to light that you too should also be circumcised? That's the argument. Can, anybody, can everybody see how powerful an argument that would be? Paul, in Galatians, is going to address that directly. He says, Abraham was counted righteous decades before he was circumcised. He wasn't circumcised and then considered righteous. The circumcision was a symbol of his righteousness. And this was a very challenging thing for Jewish people to work through, that salvation is by we're justified by faith and by faith alone. And I think what was happening in this conversation right here, and we don't know this for sure, but I'm, I, feel, I feel as strongly as you can feel without having Bible behind it, what was going on here. How many of you have, have ever submitted to the better safe than sorry method? Here we've got the Gentile. Here we've got these Jewish people that are very sensitive on this point. You have to be circumcised. And here we've got all these people over here that are saying you don't have to be circumcised. And then you've got these people in the middle that are like, we aren't sure. Better safe than sorry. So let's do it. Or... Let's at the very least give in to all of these people over here who believe that you need to. Well, while this debate was raging, while this debate was raging, there arose another question. Can I eat with people who aren't circumcised? If I follow this point of the Jewish law, that I have to get circumcised, then I also have to follow another point of the Jewish law that I can't eat with people who aren't. And suddenly, the better safe than sorry method is running into what I talked about before with rules begetting rules, isn't it? So, here's what I'm, I'm almost certain happened. Peter comes up there he sees these people who say you have to get circumcised to come up to Antioch. 
and people are talking to him, and he's thinking, I'm a pillar in the church. I need to be a good example. I, I don't want to offend anybody. So I'm going to go above and beyond and set a good example and steer clear of controversy and eat only with Jewish people so that I don't offend them as we sort of work all of this out. Everybody see sort of how that happens? Here's the trouble with that. Well, this is only half the trouble. Paul's going to point out the major trouble. Half the trouble with that is somebody is going to be offended. Here's a case where you cannot possibly please everybody. You've got the Judaizers over here who aren't going to be happy unless everybody's circumcised. And you've got the Gentile party over here who doesn't want to get circumcised. And they won't even eat with each other. And so Peter comes over here and begins, even though a day earlier he was eating with all these people, now he's over here eating only with these people, and he's actually made a show of it. Okay? It's a very public thing. The word that Paul uses for retreated himself is actually a spiritual word. It's used in the cultic language of separating oneself for the purposes of religious purity. The word where he says he retreated builds into the word fear. He retreated to separate himself. Paul is pointing out here by his grammar that it was absolutely the fear of man. It was fear of what these people would think of him. Peter was afraid of what people would think of him. Cephas, the rock. You notice the irony why Paul uses that. Upon this rock I will build my church. Rock got afraid. And it was people he was afraid of. Their opinion of him mattered to him. And so he retreated like an enemy retreats in the face of a greater force. And he spiritually separated himself ceremonially into this group over here. And Paul says that this is such a profound difficulty that they got even Barnabas to go along with him. Now Barnabas was the son of encouragement. Barnabas was the man who went and got Paul. Barnabas was one of the first to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and even he was sort of swept up in this man-pleasing. It just Paul's not offering sweeping condemnation. I think what he's trying to do is show you just how deep the fear of man can run and just how hard it is for even God's best men to overcome the fear of man. He's trying to show us how difficult a thing this was. So Paul stands up and confronts rock in front of them all. Now, I'm not going to get into the argument that Paul gets in. When Paul gets upset, he tends to uh, layer his arguments very carefully. And he does that here. And God be praised for that, because now, 2,000 years later, you still can't wriggle out of the power of Paul's argument because he steps through it so carefully. But you do have to follow him carefully. What Paul says, in a sense, is this. He says, Cephas, look. You undid the law. By preaching Christ, you undid the law. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
you're the one that had the vision uh, that unclean animals could be eaten. You're the one who argued with God over that. God is the one who showed that to you. You're the one who took the gospel to the Gentiles originally. You have undone the law. And now, having undone the law, you're redoing the law. You wiped it out. You destroyed the law. And now, by your actions, you're building the law up again. You're a hypocrite. That's what he says. Hippocrates. He says, you have departed from the straight path of the gospel. The word that he uses, the path of the gospel, we get our word podiatry from that. A, a correct walk. He says, Peter, Cephas, what you're doing is hypocritical. Because we, who are Jews, who were born Jews, came to the conclusion that through no works of the law shall we be justified, but by faith we're justified. We came to that conclusion. Therefore, to add any work of the law is not only wrong, but hypocritical. And you're embracing that hypocrisy. Now I'm going to give you the end of the story. God be praised. Cephas listened to that. Now how many of us men challenged publicly like that would have had a good response? I think it says a lot for Cephas that he clearly responded well. And he repented and later would speak glowingly of the Apostle Paul and his ministry. That says a lot for Peter, doesn't it? Well, I want us to notice something in this passage that brings us to what I'm getting to slowly, too slowly. Okay. Notice how Paul is saying us. Look at verse... Um, look at verse 15. We ourselves, verse 16, we know. Verse 17, in our endeavor, we too were found. And then notice the abrupt change in verse 18. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And notice, just notice what Paul is doing. He's not, he's very gently rebuking Peter. We were Jews. We came to this conclusion. Now let me tell you the conclusion that I have drawn in front of all of these people. Notice he doesn't point the finger at Peter. He actually turns it to himself and says, this, this is my stand. So what is the stand that Paul takes? And I want us to notice now that it would have been very easy for the Apostle Paul to litigate a minor adjustment. In other words, 
Peter, in this case, Jews can eat with Gentiles, right? And that's maybe what we would have expected him to say. There was a minor breach and a minor rule adjustment to fix the breach. But remember, Paul is not interested in rules. So what Paul does is he goes to a sweeping life statement and applies it to this incident. And here is the sweeping life statement that applies. Through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And here's the linchpin of the whole argument. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I find, I find that Christians at this very point take a step backward and they'll say something to this effect. If we were writing this today, we would have said this, that Christ died for us. And, and we've been raised with Christ because and now we, he lives with us. I find that there's a particular reluctance among born-again Christians to personalize the gospel and say he died, yes, for the world of sinners. But when he died on the cross, he had Greg Baker in mind. And that now Christ lives not in us, but yes, he does live in us, but he lives also in me. Me. Little me, insignificant me. And I have Christ. This is the sweeping life statement that the Apostle Paul is getting at. Christ loves you. Put your name in that. He dwells in you. Put your name in that. And the world is going to come at you and make you take sides. Write it down. You are going to be put in positions where you cannot please everybody. Did the person that you're afraid of die for you? Did the group that you'll displease, do they dwell in you? No. Christ did that. And now, it's not our choice. We wouldn't choose to take sides. But Christ died for me, and I was crucified with him. I... I, in a sense, hung on the cross, this instrument of torture, with him. And now I'm identified with him. And when 
the world, even if they come to me in very spiritual-looking clothes, even if they come to me with very spiritual-sounding words, and even if they come to me with Bible on their side, or what they think is Bible on their side, the deciding factor is not them, but the deciding factor is Christ who did all these things for me and who lives in me and who had me in mind when he put himself on the cross. As our world works more and more and more toward secularism, these choices where we cannot please everybody are going to get more frequent, not less. And the Savior who died for me and lives in me is asking me to identify with him even to the exclusion of them. And the Apostle Paul's statement here is, for all the world, it might look like you're choosing wrong. But the life that we now live, we live by faith. We live by faith looking to Christ, who died for us and lives for us, who died for me and lives for me. And it's an act of faith to say, I'm with Jesus on this one. I'm with Jesus on this one. And I hesitate even to make specific points because for more than 2,000 years now, this sweeping life statement has stood up to all those different specific points that have come at Christianity. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I live by faith because he loved me and he died for me and he lives in me. Christ chose me, therefore I choose Christ. And so remember this week, as choices come at you that demand you take a side. Remember Christ who died for you. And put your name in there. You see how sweeping this is? How easy it would have been for Paul just to make a rule? But he didn't. He went to the gospel and we should do the same. Father, thank you for Paul, for his words. Help us to listen to him. But more importantly, I pray that we would side with our Savior. Um, may we put behind us the fear of man and always reach forward to Christ who loves me and died for me. May we all be able to say the same. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.